Let's pray together. God, woe to us when we sing songs with lying lips, when we sit underneath your preaching and our hearts are not moved, when we hear of your mission, your gospel going out on mission to the ends of the earth and we are not stirred to be part of it. God, I think of all the people around the world who on this day suffer persecution for gathering together to worship you. Pastors who are in prison for proclaiming the name of Jesus. People who've walked miles and miles to finally get to the place to worship with brothers and sisters, putting themselves in danger. Those who have lost family because they refuse to compromise on the truth. God, give us that kind of heart. Soften our hearts, God. Expose our hypocrisy today and make us more faithful to cast aside every burden, to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus for his glory. Amen. You may have heard us Jake and me and the other elders speaking a little bit more about evangelism lately over the last couple of months. And we've emphasized this more because of a great fear we have of religious hypocrisy. Hypocrisy that manifests itself in this seeking of great knowledge of our marvelous, wonderful God. A great task, yet showing little concern for sharing that knowledge with the world. God is a generous God who has lavishly blessed us with treasures in heaven in Christ. And these are treasures that are meant to be shared with the world. So it should be our duty and our delight to go into the world and invite others to be part of the family of God through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, when we do finally work up enough gumption to go out and share that good news, open our mouths, we find that our own hypocrisy often gets in the way. You'll notice as you go out and share the gospel that skeptics will respond in opposition, grounding their skepticism in hypocritical Christians. Most of the time that response is is just an evasion of truth, trying to get around being held accountable for their lives. It's the classic, don't judge so that you won't be judged by pointing out the failures of others. And while they won't, certainly won't escape judgment for pointing out, observing hypocrisy in others, their observations aren't entirely unfounded. All of us lay these types of hypocritical obstacles in front of the world, as was made quite clear to me this week as I tried to share the gospel to some, with some Somali Muslims. I've made it, and part of my mission to go to this Somalian restaurant as often as I can to get to know the Muslims there, the people who gather there, the people who work there, to, in order to share the gospel with them. And I've gotten to know the owner fairly well, spending many hours in conversation with him. And he shared with me about life in Somalia nearly 30 years ago, growing up as a teenager in Somalia during the Civil War. And he fled that area with nothing but the clothes on his back 
and finally made it to America where he's been able to rebuild a life, even start a restaurant. He told me, he told me this week, I couldn't even take a shower in Mogadishu because of the bombs going off all around my house. We lost everything and we could barely even eat. And now I get to come and live in America where I have a restaurant and I feed so many people. He began to tell me over and over all these marvelous stories of the wonderful things he has done in his life. And I was determined to share the gospel with him so that the righteousness of Christ could shine through his incredible story. But as he kept on speaking, unknowingly to him, he began to shame me for my own lack of righteousness. He told me about how in Somalia, when he had his own, his parents had a store that they would feed blind and poor beggars every day. They'd crowd around the front door of his, his shop and they would just give them food freely because they had plenty to eat themselves. He told me about one time he was on vacation in Kenya and he was walking down the street and saw this poor beggar, homeless man on the side of the road. I think he said his legs didn't even work. So he gathered him up and took him back to his hotel room gave him a shower, gave him all new clothes, his own clothes, put on his back and brought him to the hotel restaurant to feed him as much as he could eat. While he's telling me the story, his sister walks into the restaurant helping this disabled elderly Asian man in sit down at a table. She runs back and gets him a huge plate of rice and sets it down in front of him. Tells me, can you believe that at the home he lives at, they never feed him rice? Asians love rice. So, so we bring him here and give him free rice. I had to chuckle as well as she said that, but she was serious. These people are so grateful for the freedom that America has given them that they want to save up money, go back to Somalia and rebuild that country so it can be a place where Americans would be happy to go and have a life. And as he's telling me this, Tears are welling up in my eyes. Because I can't help but think, these people are far more righteous than I am. And here I am, trying to come into their life and tell them how to live. I have the Spirit of the living God dwelling in me, and yet I don't do half of the righteous good that these people do. Sure, For all you theologians who know this truth, they are striving as hard as they can in their own self-righteousness to please Allah so they can get to paradise. That's something that I discussed with them and they couldn't acknowledge. But that's what's so convicting to me. These people who are working out of the power of their own flesh are far more righteous than we who've been bought by the blood of Jesus, who have the Spirit dwelling in us, who are changed by beholding the glory of the true God. We shouldn't expect less of them. They are image bearers. We should expect so much more of ourselves who have the image of God in us restored. Why are we not known for our abundant compassion, our tender mercies, our extreme, overwhelming generosity? This is a truth that I've wrestled with all this week long as I've been looking at this text in Matthew 23. Every one of us needs to be far more aware 
of the amount of hypocrisy in our lives and beg God to free us from it so we can be better witnesses in this world. Texts like this are often really hard to preach on. I would have rather liked to just jump over it for a little bit, especially following our wonderful Easter week. We had this great time of preaching and focusing on the arrival of the King in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then Good Friday, our sins are paid for and the resurrection comes on Sunday. We have hope for everlasting life in Christ. These are the things we want to dwell on. Not our own hypocrisy. But this is why we preach through entire books of the Bible. So that we can't skip over the parts that make us uncomfortable. And even when they do come though, there's this temptation to soften the blow. Maybe just gloss over it quickly or, or say, just defend ourselves by saying, oh, we're redeemed, so this isn't talking about us. Or quickly get to the gospel. It's okay. It's okay. Jesus died for that sin too, so you can breathe easy. But I think Jesus wants us to hear these words and not just hear them, but feel them, feel the weight of them and dwell on them and see how they paint a dark backdrop for the glorious salvation he brings us. So my goal today is simply to camp a little longer on this theme of hypocrisy and show how it applies not just to other people, but to us as well, for all of us who are still blind in our own hypocrisy. Our main idea today is beware religious hypocrisy. Beware religious hypocrisy. This isn't avoid it in other people, but be aware of it in your own heart. It's a serious warning. Hypocrisy is eternal life threatening. Remember way back in Matthew chapter 7. It's been a while since we've been that far back in the book. But Jesus warned us that some of you who profess to be Christians, to be in Christ, will walk before Him, stand before Him at the end of your life thinking you're about to step into His presence. And He's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And then it's too late. And because I don't want that to happen for any of my beloved friends here today, I must warn you of your own religious hypocrisy. So we're going to spend most of our time thinking about these woes in verses 23 to 32, showing the evidence to prove our hypocrisy. And then we'll finish in verses 33 to 39, showing the judgment to end hypocrisy. As we move through this text, try to feel the weight of the sorrow that Jesus brings to it. Think of where we've been. Matthew's told this amazing story of Jesus going all over Israel. He travels to Samaria, Galilee, even north of Israel, to other to foreign countries, healing, teaching, preaching, feeding people, giving hope to people who are broken and suffering. He's encountered a little bit of opposition along the way, but nothing serious until he arrives in Jerusalem where he sees opposition like nothing before. He's encountered such religious hypocrisy. It's disgusting. It's wicked. And so like a parent who would defend viciously your child against an attacker, Jesus jumps in filled with righteous anger and intense grief to go on the attack. The people that he has come to save are being abused by wicked men in control. 
And so how does he respond? He throws out this series, this long series of woes, warnings against this hypocrisy. And I want to read those again to you. I'm going to start back at verse 13. And I'll just read the first line of each of these woes so we can get through them in our time today. But I want to summarize. I want you to feel the pain, the sadness, the anger that Jesus has as He calls out these hypocrites. Start in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone enters by the te- swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, then he is bound by his oath. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they're full of greed and all self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those murderers, those who murdered the prophets. Seven times. Seven times Jesus calls the religious people in Jerusalem hypocrites. Hypocrites. It's a word that means a play actor, someone who works in theater who deliberately puts on a mask, a costume, in order to convince the crowds that of a different identity, that they are somebody else. And in theater, that's a good thing. So it's not necessarily a bad word, but when you apply that to your spiritual life, it is a scathing rebuke. This list is full of biting sarcasm meant to drive a stake deep into your heart. Jesus no longer has an ounce of patience for these people. They are hurting His own followers. And so this sevenfold repetition of these warnings is meant to emphasize the complete, utter hypocrisy of these people. Jesus could have listed many more, but the number seven shows that this collection is representative of their complete hypocrisy. They have turned the law into an exercise of patting themselves on the back. They nitpick over minor details to show how smart they are. Missing the big idea of the whole story is to love God and love others. They do just enough to make themselves look good, but they're far from pleasing God. They've made it all about showing how smart they are, how important they are, how godly they are. They're not interested in interested in showing God's goodness at work through them. They want everyone to look at them and marvel, oh, how good you people are. You're so wonderful. 
And they're stealing God's glory, making a name for themselves. And Jesus is furious. But his anger is also mixed with sadness, great sadness. The word woe means, or it expresses a deep pain, displeasure. It's not simply anger, but anguish. Listen, it hurts him so greatly to see what's happening to his own people. His condemnation is proclaimed through tears pouring down his cheeks. He wants so much more for his people who are beat down by religious hypocrisy. But now instead of digging deeper into the text and and showing to explore the depth of that hypocrisy, I want to just shift the lens right onto us today. Get intensely practical. Normally I'd spend a lot more time going verse by verse, showing the connections between each and then going back to other parts of the Bible and show how it connects to other verses and themes throughout all of Scripture. But if we do that, we'd spend all day here and completely run out of time for application. Woe to us if we ever read a text like this and think it doesn't apply to us. We all have hypocrisy in our lives that need to be exposed. But these woes that Jesus pronounced to the Pharisees and the scribes, they're all very specific to a first century religious culture that makes it kind of hard to bridge the the cultural gap between them and us to apply it to our own day. So I, I wondered throughout the week, what does religious hypocrisy look like among us, good conservative Christian people? And I came up with a few things on my own, but I was really curious. I asked a few other people this week, give me a list of woes that you would give to church people. And the list just grew and grew and grew and grew. And so I want to share some of that list with you today. I'm warning you now that these are scathing woes. They are meant to bite you. They're meant to hit every one of us so nobody can leave here feeling self-righteous. But I want to match the tone of Jesus as much as I can. Serious warning from the wrath to come, yet sorrowful compassion for the good of your soul. And you can trust me that I wept over these myself as the message, the emails came pouring in or I had conversations and it bit me. It pierced my heart and I wept over these things and I pray you will too. And so hang with me just for a few minutes because the good news does come at the end. Hear these woes for us contemporary Christians. Woe to you, professing Christian, who boasts in your citizenship in in America and invokes the name of God to bless your patriotism at the expense of God's mission to call the nations to Himself. Woe to you, church attender, who denies accountability of membership, believing that being right with Jesus is nobody else's business. Woe to you who come to church with a shopping cart to receive from the church without looking for a place to be a blessing to the church. You selfishly choose to be served when God has modeled and required you to be a servant. 
Woe to you who think of church as a place to get your way rather than where God gets His way. You desire to have your will be done rather than God's will through the brothers and sisters. Woe to you who think God is honored by your 70-minute attendance on Sunday rather than a 24-7 life never ceasing to pray and serve your church family. Woe to you who meagerly support the mission of the church with token offerings as the tray is passed by. Not prioritizing your life around the finances of God's church, robbing God for your own comfort. Storing up for yourselves treasures of technology, homes, cars, and vacations. Woe to you who criticize God-ordained leadership in your life under the guise of advice, concerns, observations, and corrections without showing a spirit of submission, admitting error, seeking understanding, offering yourself in service towards a solution. You elevate your understanding over the wisdom and decrees of God. Woe to you worshipers who stand and sing praise songs with lying lips, professing to delight in the glory of God. And yet your body language and your weekly behavior betrays the treasure of your heart. Woe to you elders and those who desire leadership, who enjoy positions of authority and being known for your great biblical insight, while caring little for the least of Jesus' sheep, barely lifting a finger to serve them. Woe to you elders who think yourself higher than the people, not opening your homes to welcome them in to serve and suffer with them. Woe to you elders who don't weep and tremble at this great responsibility to guide God's people with His Word. Woe to you Christian families who dress each week in your Sunday best to prove your affections for God while making the others in the church realize that their best isn't good enough for us. Woe to you who see church as the opportunity to display the respectability of your family, stealing glory from God to make a name for yourself. Woe to you who look down on societal outcasts as dirty and irresponsible, blind to the abundant mercy that God has given you by His condescending hand. Woe to you who strive for every earthly benefit for your own children, feeding them the natural organic food, eliminating toxins from your home, covering them, bathing them in essential oils, neglecting to teach them virtue and point them to righteousness in Christ. Woe to you who favor men and peace and unity in your own family so you soften the offense of the cross. Woe to you who celebrate the beauty of the natural family and do nothing for the cause of aborted babies, orphaned children, and abused and abandoned women. Woe to you mission-minded Christians who dream of sharing the gospel overseas and do nothing here where God has put you to share the gospel with your neighbor or even the children who don't know Christ who are among us. Woe to you who turn your eyes away from the stranger and foreigner living in our own city. Woe to you who talk of sharing the gospel, but when opportunities are put in your path, you push them away. 
Woe to you who are ambitious to do great things for God while denying the means of God's salvation and witness. Ordinary faithfulness. Enduring in contentedness through ordinary life. Woe to you who freely give away food and clothes and education and never share the life-changing truth of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus, sending them to hell with full bellies. Woe to you, biblical theologian who boasts in the sovereignty of God, but don't actually trust that sovereign God to save your neighbor through your witness. Don't trust that sovereign God to run His church without your wise input. Woe to those biblical theologians whose banner over you is reformed theology, quibbling over jots and tittles. When Christ's banner over us is love, building up the church in faith. Woe to any of us who pronounce scathing woes on others while refusing to judge ourselves for our half-hearted service to God. Avoiding judgment by pointing the finger away from us. Woe to you who spent any time in the last five minutes hearing these woes and thinking about somebody else that they apply to for the, with the same judgment we all will be judged. There's so many more. I had to greatly shorten this list to stop because we could despair so quickly the more we look into our black hearts. I had to speak, I spoke with a homeless man this week and asked him, how often have you seen religious hypocrisy in, in your life? He just laughed. I don't have time to go through every story. Our situation is dire, my friends. Each of us far worse than we're willing to admit. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks. If he charges you falsely on some point, be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches and it would still be nearer the truth. My goal, friends, is not to shame you and leave you hanging your head that you're not good enough here today. I do hope you feel the sting of looking into the mirror of God's truth and seeing your own hypocrisy. It's a serious fault that could be eternally destructive for your soul. So hopefully you're to the place now where you are ready to say, what is to be done about my own hypocrisy? We'll look back at verses 33 to 39. We'll see the judgment to end hypocrisy. Jesus doesn't have nice words for us to begin with. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, the first martyr, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the last one in the Old Testament to be killed whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent it. How often 
What I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And yet you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right away, Jesus gives us the answer to what happens to our hypocrisy. Judgment is coming. How will you escape being sentenced to hell? Such hypocrisy requires God's swift judgment. And the evidence is clear. Every one of us is a hypocrite. How will we escape? The answer is not. Well, just do better. Recognize it and stop being a hypocrite. That will only heap upon you more guilt, more burdens that you cannot bear. My goal is to actually pull you out of the way today. Get yourself out of the way of yourself and see that Jesus is glorious and able to accomplish His purposes through you. Even through your hypocritical life. A message like this is like Isaiah's warning to Israel saying the neighboring nations are coming to wipe us out. They're going to burn all of our fields and salt them so nothing can grow. Nothing will survive. Except one thing. They promised one thing would survive. Such a judgment. Such destruction. The indestructible root of the promised gospel. The good news that all the prophets foretold. They warned of the coming judgment. They said, but God is merciful if you trust Him. But they killed Him. They killed every one of those prophets who warned them. And they're about to do the same thing. Jesus foretells that the scribes and Pharisees will fulfill what their murderous forefathers did. But this time, it's different. This time, the one true righteous prophet, Jesus, will stand in the path of such wicked hypocrisy. He is the true prophet that all the other prophets pointed to. And yet, just like the others, they will flog him, kill him, crucify him. The only righteous person who ever lived. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, Peter wrote. The one who knew no sin, who never spoke a word of hypocrisy, took the sin of hypocrites on his, on the cross. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? It's not by finally overcoming hypocrisy in your life. You can't do that in your own power and in this life. It won't happen. Only trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus will He rescue you from such condemnation. And when He does, when you throw that burden at the feet of the cross and you get down on your knees and say, have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. And He gives you His Holy Spirit in you. The same Spirit that walked with Him through His righteous life. The same Spirit that rose Him from the dead is changing you from the inside out to get rid of every ounce of hypocrisy left. This is such a freeing truth. That He will work through us over our lifetime to release us from this. So we can be certain that the victory of the kingdom, the spread of the gospel, the growth of the church is not dependent upon us shedding every bit of hypocrisy. It's a guaranteed victory, guaranteed by the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is certain. 
And if He's living in you, your life becomes a testimony of that power. We embrace the value of His righteousness, the power of His promises. We delight in the worthiness of His glory. And we finally overcome our own hypocrisy, becoming those generous givers. That's the goal of such a warning of hypocrisy. That's the heart behind these scathing woes. Listen to his heart in verse 37. This is the heart that becomes ours when we trust in Him and follow His mission. He weeps over His people. Jerusalem! Jerusalem! How He longs to gather them under the protection of His wings. He's using the imagery of God in the Old Testament hovering over all of creation, protecting it, nurturing it. Or what the prophets said, God is the eagle that bears His people up and shelters them under His wings. This is what He accomplished on the cross. He spread His wings wide and said, all who find shelter and refuge under Him will be saved. And their hypocrisy will be turned into righteousness. Beware of your own religious hypocrisy. Recognize, brothers and sisters, that your house is desolate. It's a wasteland. Your great biblical insights, your wonderful leadership skills, your well-managed home, evangelistic zeal, your heartfelt worship is all offensive to God outside of Christ. And it's only pleasing to God when you surrender to King Jesus and join Him on His mission so that the whole world will welcome Him when He returns. He will come again to people shouting, Blessed be, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds shouted this very same thing just the week before in the Palm Sunday arrival of the king in Jerusalem, and then they crucified him. They killed him. They didn't want to hear it. But then he rose from the dead, conquering hypocrisy once and for all, and promises to return, to bring judgment, to wipe it out forever. And when hypocrisy has been eliminated, the only thing that will be left standing is the root of Jesus and all who are gathered under his wings. So flee to Him for refuge from your own hypocrisy. Trust Him to put His abundant mercy on display. Go and make that kind of disciple. Let's pray. God, these are hard words to hear. I pray every one of us is humbled. That we humble ourselves and come low so that in due time, You would exalt us. You would pick us back up and make us into the witnesses You created us to be. God, make Redemption City Church different. Save us from our folly. Make us better witnesses. Don't let us simply let this be a part of our calendar, our schedule, our routine, and where we just leave here and go about our own business, but shape us, God, to make us useful for your purposes. Put your generosity, your compassion, your love all on display through us. May our love for one another show the world what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Turn us into servants who give 
who deny everything about ourselves, welcome people into our homes, give abundantly of our treasures so that the world may know that God is alive in us. Do that, God, for the sake of Jesus. Answer us by the power of His name. Amen.